Blog Talk Radio. It's our fourth anniversary show today here on Backroom Politics. Yes, we've been giving you the best political talk show that nobody's ever heard of for the past four years, and we're here to celebrate. Hey, if you're a Republican, we're also here to celebrate midterms. That's right, the shellacking, the throttling, what insert beat-down adjective here. We're going to do our post-midterm analysis today on our fourth anniversary show, special edition of Backroom Politics. Here we go. Live from Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., this is Backroom Politics. To join the discussion, you can call toll-free 1-877-662-3713. And now, the moderator of Backroom Politics, Justin Russell. Right, America is Thursday. It's now time for a special fourth year anniversary edition of Backroom Politics, live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Joining me, as they do usually every Tuesday, to my left, ironically, he is the former floor chief for then Congressman Gerald R. Ford. He is also the former Vice President of Government Affairs for the National Broadcasting Corporation. He is Bob Hines. Hello, Roberts. Hi, Justin. Glad to be here on a very happy day if you're a Republican. That's right. And to his left, he is a very solemn and kind of hungover from the beatdown they took on Tuesday. He's a former executive director of the great Democratic Party of the great state of Maryland and former Fox lobbyist. He is Carl Tubin. Hi, Carl. Well, <clears throat> I mourned for one day, and today I woke up and said, 216 is right around the corner. And she, directly across the table, she is longtime Washington operative and youth coordinator and great, happy, perky Republican today, Rebecca Kaufman. Hi, Rebecca. Hi, Justin. Are, are you happy today? I am very happy. You look just overly bubbly today. I am. <laughs> Good. And to my two o'clock across the table, he is the former Undersecretary of Commerce who served under last count four presidents. He is longtime Senate staff for Washington Insider and a very handsome and distinguished fellow from the Stimson Center. He is the Honorable Alan Moore. Hello, Alan. Hello, Justin. And then Dan Lipner, the Democratic political operative who's still hung over from Tuesday. He looks a little beat down, but we'll get to that. Hey, we're going to talk about, oh, my gosh, what am I doing? I'm so excited the fact that we've been doing this four years. I completely <laughs> forgot. Joining us today, we are honored to have with us, he is the former ops boss at the White House, special assistant to the president for operations, longtime Washington insider, and a principal at Urban Hill Strategy Group. He is Rhett Dawson. Mr. Dawson, thank you for joining us. Thank you. I appreciate you having us. And I almost forgot, joining us on the phone after a long term in rehab, after surgery and getting well, joining us right now is Congressman Al Swift. 
former congressman from the second congressional district of Washington. Hooray, hooray for me. Hooray, hooray. Hey, how you feeling, Al? Well, I'm 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 currently reminded of the expression "out of sight, out of mind" because you almost forgot me altogether. But I'm I'm doing well. I'm recuperating, and uh, the pain is uh, is not bad, and uh, we're we're headed in the right direction. Is, is unlike my pain, party. <laughs> is any of the pain Al caused by whiplash from the big wraparound that you saw on Tuesday? No. <laughs> well, no, let's talk no. about that. Let's talk about that for a second. So, in case you've been living under a rock or in the middle of the Everglades swamps, uh, the Republicans had a huge night, the biggest night that they've seen ever, I would venture to say, as far as reclaiming Congress. It is possibly the biggest number that they've seen since the Truman era. It is a net gain of at least seven Senate seats, which gives them firm control of Congress. And we could see as many as 250 Republicans in the House. Uh, I'm going to start off with a little bit of Republican sentiment on this. Uh, Rep. Dawson, you've been around the Republican Party in for many years, not to call out your, your age or anything, Rhett, but Rhett... A lot of Republicans I've talked to inside the Beltway were still, even they were kind of caught off guard how big a wave this was. Were you surprised at the amount of wind that we heard and the wind that we saw with the Republican Party on Tuesday? Very much so. Did, how so? Well, I mean, you, you make the mistake of reading the polls and believing the pollsters know what they're doing. And uh, the big losers, I think, weren't the Democrats so much as were the pollsters on Tuesday because they I don't know any pollsters that uh, were even close. But so, we, uh, not the absolute numbers, but, right. but the margins were so. Well, that that would mean that the pollsters have taken a couple of drubbings in a row. Remember how stunned the Republicans were uh, that they that uh, even the last presidential election. Uh, so I I'm, I think the pollsters are need to go back to the to the. Uh, Blueprint board and get uh, get their their stuff right. Well, Congressman Al, let me ask you this. I mean, you know, as a former Democratic member of Congress, even you had to be surprised at the results from Tuesday because it caught pretty much everybody, including Desiree Wasserman Schultz at the DNC, off guard. Well, I, I wasn't that surprised. I think I was surprised at the uh, at the magnitude of it, but not that it it, it occurred. Uh, for example, uh, watching the Maryland governor's race, uh, my my good Democratic colleague from Maryland, uh, uh, who's one of our panel, he and I after after a show a couple three weeks ago. Uh, talked about saying, "What in the world is Brown doing? He's not. He's not doing the right things," and uh, and we both agreed on that. Uh, so we, of course, didn't mention that to any Republicans at the time. But uh, he was the 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 guy who won was running good ads in a timely fashion, and the guy that lost was running poor ads uh, and not at the right times. Well, let, let's talk about this. Dan Lipner, uh, when we, I mean, Maryland was just one example. 
But you're talking Kay Hagen, Udall, uh, big names that nobody thought would go red in this election, went red, and in a strong way, was the DNC caught off guard and caught with their pants down on this one? Uh, the short answer is yes, but they were caught off guard principally because of a misunderstanding of both the electorate and, and what plays an off-year election. Um, it's been talked about that the Banneker Street Project, which was the the uh, attempt to use uh, Obama's get-out-the-vote machine that was so successful for the presidentials in 08 and 12 uh, for the first time in an off-year election, and it failed catastrophically uh, to try and change who was going to be voting in the off-year. And what we know is the, the demographics that voted, to no surprise in every political operative's knowledge for the last century, is off-year elections, the voters are older, they are whiter, and they are more conservative, which was true everywhere. So the Banneker Street Project failed. Obama did not change the politics. Alan Moore, though, when, when we look at the numbers, I mean, the turnout numbers were not glowing by any respect. In fact, the president made a point yesterday during his press conference addressing the midterm elections. He basically said, and I quote, to the one-third of Americans that voted, I hear you. To the other two-thirds, I also hear you. Is this denial in this president, or is he sending out a message that, hey, the Republicans are running around gloating about something. They really don't have anything to gloat about. I think they have a lot to gloat about. <laughs> we call it, at the moment, seven and likely to be nine uh, uh, new senators. Um, change of numbers in the Senate. Um, and let's all and, remember uh, that nobody can gloat like a Republican. <laughs> well, except for Democrats who love to give them a run for their money. Um, although not this, not today, not yesterday, not for a while. Um, back in tw back uh, in 2012, I remember some serious gloating. Um, anyway, it, it's uh, we know turnouts are going to be low, and they were they were not that different than what we would have expected. The problem for the pollsters is we still haven't caught up, and I, I don't blame the pollsters for this. To technological change, once upon a time everybody had a landline. Most people picked up their phone and answered it when somebody called. And so at least you could have a fairly small sample that would be representative. As people started getting uh, uh, caller ID and then cell phones and then dumped their landlines or refused to pick them up, it created a huge complication for the pollsters. They have to call a lot more people over and over again. So that's your first problem. They still haven't sorted that out. The other problem is to ask people, are you going to vote? And people lie. People don't want to admit, nah, I don't think so. Haven't voted in a while, no. So it's really hard. Now, having said that, the pollsters had a very bad day. They missed the magnitude on race after race. The ones they thought were going to be close weren't close. Ones that they thought were going to be comfortable, in some cases, were very, very close. So the, the obviously the Democrats lost big. The president lost uh, biggest of all, but yes, the pollsters had a bad day too. Go ahead, Carl Tubin. Well, several things. First of all, one of the things that hopefully candidates learn on our side by by this is you do not run away from your president. Uh, <clears throat> Health care, 
was an issue that should have been brought up. Uh, people, most people are happy with the health care the way it is. <clears throat> the economy uh, wasn't uh, brought up. The fact that the economy has gotten better. Uh, I was talking to the president of Vietnam Veterans of America today, and he said, you know, uh, Banner came out and said we had to do something about the debt. Well, the debt's been, almost been cut in half since uh, since the president came in. Came the in. deficit, Carl, not the debt. The deficit. All right. There's uh, a difference. If the president, if the president, this is a question mark. If the president had put out his immigration decree before the election, Udall might have been reelected in uh, in. Uh, 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 Colorado. Colorado and other people might have been reelected also. Uh, <clears throat> and the one thing that I wanted the Democrats to key in on is, is, is the mess in Washington and how the Tea Party was creating a lot of this uh, uh, discord and, uh, and holding back a lot of things from happening. And unfortunately, except for Hillary who at one point talked about, in one of the speeches, talked about the dysfunction in Washington, never talked about the Tea Party uh, directly and the fact that the, the fact that they were part of the thing is why Washington hadn't moved. Bob Hines. The fact of the matter is that there was a big, dark cloud over the Democratic Party. The fact of the matter is they had to carry a. They had the load of the president of the United States, who is uh, as close to being a failed operation as I, as I think most of us have ever seen. And that was unfortunate for them. They had no chance there. But the fact that what Carl just said about the Tea Party, I think, is, is is well overblown. It has been some time since the Tea Party has had the kind of impact within the Republican Party in the House, particularly. It's been at least over a year and a half now, I'd say, before they were really uh, a strong force because the, the fact that the when uh, Mr. Uh, uh, what's his name from uh, uh, Virginia? Uh, Warner. 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 No. Uh, uh, Ed Gillespie? No, the guy, the congressman who lost his seat. Oh, Eric Cantor. When Cantor lost and, and, the, and the, uh, the leadership saw to it that uh, it was a wise idea to bring uh, Salisi in, who is a member of the Tea Party leadership, into the leadership of the House. And they, therefore, the Tea Party had a voice within the leadership and a voice that was be able to talk to them and tell them what the leadership was doing and it urging them to stay with it. The leadership has now got a stronger position and it's, it's more able to move legislation forward. And I expect to see a very interesting move in the next uh, six months as the as the House and Senate work together to move some legislation, and I think the Tea Party would be a part of the team that moves it. Rick Dawson, let me ask you, though, when we hear that, I mean, we saw a definitive Republican win, but we're still trying to figure out even today what the role of the Tea Party is, and even if the Tea Party was a factor in this. Was what we saw on Tuesday more of a role towards the true established Republican Party as we've known it in the past under great leaders like Frank Ferenkopf and Haley Barber? Or are we seeing still some remnants of Tea Party influence in how the party moves forward? And can the Tea Party claim success on Tuesday? 
Well, I don't think they can claim success, but I I kind of agree with Bob. I think they have diminished their influence over the direction of our national policy from what it was a year and a half ago. But I think what happened in terms of the of the win was we had stronger candidates than we had in 2012. We had some candidates in 2012 that were really scary. <laughs> and this time we had a, a solid group of candidates across the board. Uh, and they campaigned hard. They didn't wear the Tea Party if they were a Tea Party on their sleeves. And most importantly for me, I think, was they avoided social issues that had kind of tripped them up previously. So it was a combination of them. Dan Lipner. And I think what you're saying is absolutely correct, actually. Um, with the exception of Joni Ernst, who I think is going to join the Tea Party wing in the Senate, uh, the Republican Party did an excellent job of message control and keeping the crazy quiet. That said, I do suspect there's going to be a bit of the crazy coming out of the House that's going to have to be dealt with. Yeah, but the, re- the real success was is that the quality of the candidates and the way they presented themselves this year was so much better than we've had in the past. Right, and that's exactly true. And the true. Tea Party people and, lost in the primary. With and, the exception of Florida. Rick Scott's not. And, 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 but, but that's the point. that those, all, Part of the Democratic failure, and to be clear, a failure of this White House, That and some of the numbers that rolled out are, are uh, Frank Luntz's numbers, so hardly a liberal pollster. When 63% of the people who voted yesterday think that the overall American system is rigged toward the wealthy and they choose to vote Republican, that is a failure of Democratic politics. Traditionally, this is where Democrats come home, where you have marijuana laws that pass, where you have minimum wage laws that pass. You also had people splitting their ticket and voting for the Republican on that ticket because... Because the Democratic brand, the identity of the Democratic brand, has been diminished amongst off-year voters for constituency politics, ignoring the fact that actual working people who have been still hurting under this economy were just ignored entirely. Alan Moore. I got a shocking piece of news for some Democrats. The voters might be smarter than the Democrats are giving them credit for. When they say, wow, people think that the system is working better for rich people, and they're, and wow, and they might still vote for a Republican, gosh, they might, must be stupid. I love it when the Democrats believe that and say that because it gives me a lot of hope. I want to say something about another big loser yesterday because I've been pounding on this guy for a long time. Harry Reid had an incredibly bad day. And and it serves him right. And one of the great ironies of this of this whole race is by screwing around with the rules and the procedures of the Senate that actually work. They're messy, but they work. Not bringing up bills, not giving his own people a chance to get votes on amendments. What happened was we had a Senate for the last two years that was mostly procedural votes, which were party line votes. So even though these guys didn't even get a chance to vote on issues, they had 97, 98 percent voting with the with the leadership, with the president. And they were all hammered for that, including Mark Warner. Brett Dawson. Well, and I think the other piece of it that that you have to kind of own up to is somehow the Republicans were able to nationalize this election and make it all about Obama. Now, maybe Obama doesn't quite get that, but 
every Democrat I talk to recognizes that and thinks that that's what really the election is all about. I, no, I absolutely agree. That's, and that's part of the reason Dan that, that the White House's failure to <coughs> inability to talk about any issues anywhere, even the ones that are successful. The economic numbers are going in the right direction and have for the last year. That said, they've been it's been impossible for them to talk about it. And even after the president came out and gave his speech yesterday, thought, refusing to use the word drubbing or shellacking that the press was trying to get out of them. Why have they been unable to do that? Because this, this White House communications is has been suspect, to say the least. The Washington Post had a great article yesterday, and it's finally come clearly to light that this White House has had remarkably strained relations with Democrats on the Hill, that there was constant infighting because this White House thought it knew better than everyone else that in the Democratic Party. Becca Kaufman. The reason the White House can't talk about the economy is because poll after poll shows that Americans are still feeling the effects of the recession. And while the economy is sluggishly improving, Americans just aren't feeling that in their homes. Um, Carl, you said that Democrats ran away from Obama and that was a mistake. I think they didn't run far away enough from Obama. I think that in the states that they let um, Michelle come out, they let him, Obama come out. I mean, we saw what happened. They, they lost. Americans rejected big government on Tuesday. It was great to see. Well, wait, wait, hold on, hold on, hold on. Bob Hines. I'll say it again. I think the fundamental problem the Democrats had was that the president is not looked upon by the public as a successful president. Just in, in any way you look at it, he is unpopular. People don't feel he's he's doing anything. He just seems to sit there. He doesn't seem to integrate, work with people. He has no relationship with anybody on the Hill, much less Republicans or Democrats. He doesn't talk to anybody. And I think that problem is so, that cloud is so heavy that it was just easy for people to say, I'm going to vote for the other guy. I'm going to vote for Republicans. And I think a lot of it is just that simple. Congressman Al, what say you? I mean, if you had been running in this race, would you have embraced the president? And more generally, was this a referendum on President Obama versus the Democratic priority as a whole? Well, partly. But I think that the problem was that the Democrats couldn't make a distinguish, couldn't distinguish between uh, the the fact that the president was unpopular and some of his programs were popular. They didn't have to run around saying, "Oh, I love uh, Barack Obama," but they certainly, and Carl referred to this, they, they they certainly could have taken credit for the for the health care bill. Uh, I remember saying to another member of the panel two or three weeks ago, I said, you know, the, 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 they're going to be sorry that they, uh, the Republicans, that they wrapped themselves so tightly in an anti-health care bill. And uh, this person was absolutely flabbergasted that I would even think such a thing. But that's a case of where the Republicans are failing to recognize r- reality. So it's a case of where the Republicans knew that they had a unpopular president they could run against, and they ran against him very effectively. Uh, the, the the Democrats uh, kept trying to run a wounded president as a thing, rather than uh, the the policies that the president had that were pretty well show that uh, that. Uh, Things are 
on, on policy basis, uh, he's doing pretty good. Carl Tubin. Well, you know, I learned something else I learned from this Maryland election, and that was that the governor of Maryland had a very high rating, a positive rating, at the beginning of the campaign. And because of the ads put on by Hogan, his rating dropped down to very, very low. Uh, and that was only... But, you know, but, but Carl, hold on, Carl, Carl, let me ask you a question about that. You made a statement. No, wait, wait. You made a statement about that. And I want to ask, I just want to ask a follow-up. Is it, is it fair to say that O'Malley's popularity rating dropped because of the success of Hogan? Is that is that what no, you're saying? I'm saying his popularity dropped because he was Hogan was beating up on the O'Malley administration and their policies and, and their actions. And what I'm saying is that that was in a period of about three months, three four months, six years, six years. Republicans have been beating up on President Obama, and it's, it's, it's when you look at that and you, and you, you look at the short period for O'Malley and look at six years, no wonder why people are, are distressed and Democrats are distressed. Alan Moore, then Becca Kaufman. And we took a beating. Well, I'm just amused again. We, we, we go around through this over and over again of how poor President Barack Obama has been so picked on. And everybody's always been so nice to other presidents that we've had in recent years, which, of course, is garbage. I do have to take issue with my good friend, Al. It hurts me to do this since he's not even here. But when, when well, Al don't talks do it about... Well, <laughs> <laughs> fair enough, Al. Fair enough. But I think when you talk about these highly successful programs of President Obama that somehow the word's not getting out, I think, oh, Al, you're such a dreamer. The, the, the health care bill, the jury is still out. Everything else, not much has happened. The economy is sluggishly improving, but, it, but, the, but, but it's not spread throughout the population, which, as Becca said earlier, 70% of the people feel very uncom uncomfortable or very uncomfortable about the state of the economy. We talk about unemployment rate, but we're not talking about the number of people who are actually working, which is lower, lower than it was six years ago. And, and that's why people are frightened. They still don't have their homes. They're worried about their kids' education. That stuff hasn't gone away. It kept some people home, but it also brought some people to the polls saying, I hate all of these guys. It's a hard time for incumbents, but I particularly don't like what I see of the Democrats. That will change down the road, but but that was, the I think, such a key factor here. Becca Kaufman. Yeah, I don't feel bad for Obama, and I don't feel bad for O'Malley. O'Malley introduced, I think it was 83 new taxes to Maryland citizens. Um, and just in the past year, he's also introduced a carbon tax, which has been wildly unpopular. Um, he deserves to be hit in the ads that he was hit in. And he also himself has openly embraced Obama time and time again, even as Obama's popularity has reached all-time lows within the American public. So that is a failure on O'Malley's part. He wasn't responding to his constituents, and I don't feel bad for him. So, But when we look at this, Rhett Dawson... The president obviously was radioactive in this election. Do you recall in your time in Washington seeing a president this radioactive? 
other than maybe George W. Bush? Uh, Jimmy Carter came very close. He was a uh, weakish uh, as opposed to a strong president. And, uh, uh, and you know, he inherited the, the Ron Rescue failure and the hostage question. So, yeah, I, and he was uh, he was pretty uh, pretty disliked by his own party. Carl Tuvin. He was also one that wasn't able to uh, talk about his successes, what few they might have been, but he wasn't able to talk about them. And the Democratic Party has always had, over the years, had a problem not being able to get a lot of their plus points across to the public. And it's happened happened again. Dan Lipner, I mean, uh, and before we go, this is a special edition of Backroom Politics Live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Just want to throw that in there because we're not going to do a lot of ads today. Uh, Dan Lipner, when we look at the, the types of races that were run, it almost seems that we look at the Maryland governor's race, we look at the race of uh, Senator Warner in Virginia. It seems that it, it is equally blamable for bad campaign management in several of these key races. Is that accurate? Uh, I don't think so, actually. Uh, I've, I've heard nothing that Warner's ran a bad race. I have heard that from several sources, uh, not just Carl. Uh, about uh, Brown in in Maryland, uh, and also to Carl's point, uh, the in Arkansas, Pryor actually did run toward uh, Obamacare, and he still got beat. Uh, but what I wanted to point out is also in Arkansas, the minimum wage passed, and I would challenge anyone at this table to to give me a Republican who su- supports raising the minimum wage. I bring that up because I'm agreeing that the the economic fear. Is that is palpable in every place other than Washington, the three trillion dollar budget that gets spent here. That that those issues, those kitchen table issues that Democrats didn't speak to. I mean, that was part of the reason Udall lost in Colorado. They started calling him Senator Senator Uterus because it was, it was all birth control all the time as far as his race. And the last minute move by the Obama administration to say they're going to take executive action on immigration reform could have actually saved Udall. Had that happened much, much earlier. Rhett Dawson. I'm, I'm not an expert on Arkansas, but my understanding what also happened in Arkansas is they swept both of the houses of the legislature, took the governorship, and turned that state into a red state when not many years ago it was Bill Clinton's home state and Bill Clinton campaigned there. I don't I can't explain the anomaly of the minimum wage, except it's very popular. Well, it's not the anomaly. It also passed in three other states. It passed in Arkansas, Nebraska, and South Dakota. Uh, These aren't exactly blue states. Alan Moore. So so I'm glad that even though Dan has been pretty hard on the White House and on on the Democrats for how they ran things, I'm glad he's still (laughs) drinking a little bit of the Obama Kool-Aid about the minimum wage. Yesterday, the president said, gee, we, we, it was a hard day for Democrats, but it's nice to see that some of the American people support some of the stuff I support. Well, and then we just say increase the minimum wage. 
How shocking is it that more, although every poll that we've ever seen shows that more than 70% of America thinks we should raise the minimum wage because it just seems somehow fair and who cares if the CBO says it'll cost between half a million and a million jobs, too bad for those people. We want to pay raise a little inflation, not a problem. So, so but what, what you saw yesterday was not a vote on what the president wants to do, which is to take the minimum wage to $10.10. We've talked around this table about the regional differences and disparities which lead states to decide through the legislature, um, uh, typically not referendum, but through referendum, what our minimum wage should be. Not a single one of the five states that increased the minimum wage yesterday, uh, yesterday one, one yeah, I think, was just one was there were, there were four that require it and one that went on record in, in, in favor of it that is not binding. Not one of them takes the minimum wage as high as the president proposes to do. They were they they bounced around. They were related to the local government. The Arkansas one is significantly lower than the ten dollars and ten cents. And it takes a couple of years to get there. We've said let locals make that judgment. Let's let's acknowledge that people support it. There were candidates who didn't stick, who didn't get in the middle of minimum wage, like in Nebraska. It was like that's up to the state. There may have been some republic. There are plenty of Republicans who, over the years, have worked on compromises on the federal minimum wage. It was George W. Bush who signed the last increase or who, who pushed the last increase in the minimum wage. These are always negotiations, but. To, for, for the president or anybody else to say, gee, how could you vote for a Republican and also vote for an increase in the minimum wage? Those two were not linked, and it's a different issue than what the president proposes. Congressman Al, do you agree that the minimum wage isn't necessarily linked with a Republican or Democratic vote, or were they intertwined? No, I, I think minimum wage is one of those things where the Republicans have uh, branded themselves anti working person, and they've done so for decades. Uh, and uh, to suggest that uh, they haven't uh, is to, well, Alan thinks that I'm off in a dream world. Uh, join me there with with that point of view. <laughs> You've always seemed to like your world, Al. <laughs> Becca Kaufman. Yeah, well, you got to feel sorry for the Democrats because this is one of the only talking points they have is that these ballot measures pass and they're saying that this indicates that people are still on board with some of their policies like the minimum wage. It's really one of the only things that they can say right now. Um, what should be alarming to people is anyone who watched Obama respond yesterday saw how completely tone deaf he is to the American electorate. He went up there. How so? Barely congratulated the Republicans, barely acknowledged the massive historic Republican takeover that happened on Tuesday, and immediately pivoted to exactly what Dan was just saying. Well, in certain states, ballot measures passed that were that are popular amongst Democrats. So what this is really saying is that Americans are really on our side. They just didn't turn out to vote. He is so tone deaf to what the American public is feeling, is going through, um, the effects they're feeling of the sluggish economy. He's just completely out of touch, and it, it should be alarming for anyone who watched that response. Dan Lipner? Well, in the world of congratulating the other side, uh, I, I, when CNN reports that Mitch McConnell didn't take the president's call, I'm quite certain Alan uh, will chime in with the fact that any of his bosses in the Senate, when the president calls, regardless of which party they are, 
you, that's generally a call you take, isn't it, Alan? It is definitely Did a call. He called the Mitch McConnell. It's hold on, hold on, hold on. A call you take, and I understand they had a conversation yesterday. Yesterday, not on election night when the call was made. So what do I know? What do any of us know about what he was doing when the call came in to suggest that we know that he looked Oh, the president wants to talk to me? Hell no. I, I'm, that, I'm that's just absurd. I'm uh, okay, hold on, hold on, hold on. Dan, Dan Lipner, hold on. Well, Let's go with Red, Red, uh, Red Dawson. On that subject, I, I couldn't quite understand why the president said, I'm calling the congressional leaders to the White House on Friday. He does that on election night. He doesn't do that after the results are in. On Wednesday, he does it on Tuesday. I'm sorry. That is as wrong-footed is a move I have seen in a long time. Gar- it took away all the conciliation air out of the bubble. I mean, it's just- Carl Tuvin? You know, I don't think it's, it was so bad. I mean, he he saw what was going on in the in the electric, electric, and he knew that we were going to take a, a beating, and therefore he was, in, in my mind, holding out a, a hand. Let's get together. Red, let's talk. Red Dawson, respond. That was not, not the way you do conciliation at the White House. If you wait until after the results are in, and then you throw the the the, the congratulatory the, phone yeah, calls and the handout gesture, it just doesn't work when you do it simultaneous with the people who are looking at the results. It just doesn't work. And Alan Moore. Yeah, there's a, there, there's another thing that we that we saw yesterday in the Washington Post, which some of us, uh, Red and I, uh, and Bob. Uh, and then, too, who've worked on the Hill know that there are certain things that where you can, as a staff person, you can talk to the press. You have to be careful and cautious. What we saw yesterday was Harry Reid. Oh, my gosh, I'm bringing him up again. Harry Reid's chief of staff, a guy named David Crone, talking on the record with the Washington Post reporters over in recent weeks, trashing the White House, giving first-hand reports of meetings that involved the president. Talk about a complete and total no-no. That is it. In, in my mind, that is a firing offense for a staff. Well, I got to tell you, so, I got to tell you something. I saw the deputy communications director from the RNC on MSNBC doing a similar thing on the R side that was not necessarily uh, a, a really good communications plan, strategy, or whatever. If I'm the RNC, I'm telling everybody, let's hold off, let the candidates have their night, then the RNC will chime in, and we'll start giving – they were talking about all kind, you know, I mean, MSNBC, granted, was asking about stuff like impeachment and stuff like that, and he tap danced around it. Uh, and, and even Ted Cruz, Ted Cruz, who didn't even have an election race that night, is out there fronting, talking about how we're going to reset the Obama agenda. And I thought that was not exactly yeah, the best. Elected politicians, you can't control them. They, you know, staffers, they, on the other they, hand. Staffers have a, have, a, have a different set of rules. And what, what so struck me about the story here was the only reason this guy is even in a White House meeting is because he's – He's the the, uh, the the plus one for the Senate Majority Leader, and he is divulging not only what he has seen, but also is is characterizing 
the the party react the, the 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 collective reaction. It was really an out of bounds comment that you could be sure pissed the hell out of out of other Democratic senators and hopefully his boss. Although with Harry Reid, who knows anymore what makes that? Well, we're going to take a we're going to take a quick break here. When we come back, joining us here at the roundtable. It's former California Congressman Vic Fazio is going to join the discussion as we look at the midterms and our fourth year anniversary. This is Backroom Politics live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. We will be back in two minutes. Stay with us. Wow, a little bit of Fats Waller, Lulu back in town. And I, I tell you, when I am back in town or when any of my friends are back in town or heck, when we're living here in town, we usually find ourselves down at Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., right across from the National Press Club. Why do we come here? Well, they've got the city's best cigar menu, the most diversified with some of the best-known brands and some that you might even know, but you might want to give it a try. Everything from Arturo Fuentes down to Zeno. You can go all the way from your $9 little petite girly flavored cigars all the way up to the Opus X Lost City. They have a cigar for everybody. Mild, medium, strong, heavy. However you want to smoke it, it's available here at Shelly's Back Room. Come in, have Bob, Na, or any one of the girls show you what the right cigar might be for your taste that evening. Again, Shelly's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. As Bob likes to put it, it is definitely the place to be. You can tell the mailman not to call I ain't coming home until the fall And again I might not get back home at all Lulu's back in town Republican run 
that happened on Tuesday. I kind of asked uh, the Republicans around the table, I'd love to get your insight on this. Were you shocked at the wave or the size of going from 214 to 250 and the fact that we picked up a net gain of at last count seven could go as high as nine in the Senate? Well, I think uh, everybody was shocked at the closeness of some of the races, like one here in Virginia. I had thought 52% would be good for Mark Warner. You know, he's hanging on by, you know, a few thousand votes. He'll be reelected. But that gives you some indication of how tough it was all the way across the country. I think, frankly, uh, this was the lowest turnout since 1942, the year I was born. And uh, <laughs> yeah. it was largely uh, white and senior and male. And that's not a good recipe for the Democrats these days. So, Congressman, but it, it seems to me that, you know, looking at the Republican wave, but as you pointed out, the low turnouts, how do the Republicans turn around and look at that saying, hey, look, everything we're being accused of, retired white people with nothing better to do going to the polls and electing Republicans, as opposed to, and we're going to talk about this in a second, millennials. Uh, the minorities, and the other quote-unquote disillusioned, do the Republicans take this as a sign of we still need to get our true party as a whole ground game back together? Yeah, I think this was a repudiation of the president and his party. He may not have quite interpreted it that way yesterday, (laughs) but I looked at it. But it also is not an affirmation of the Republican Party. I mean, one of those groups that really did drop off was the millennials. We had far fewer younger folks. Even in uh, Georgia and in uh, North Carolina, where it really mattered, the black turnout was pretty close to where it was two years ago. But most of the country, minority voters didn't show up and young voters didn't show up. And I think that's, you know, it's not unusual for midterm elections, although there may have been some other contributing factors to it. There was a general unhappiness with the state of their economic affairs. Young people are struggling to get jobs and hold jobs and so, I mean, if they believe that Obama could fix that problem, they may be somewhat uh, disillusioned by the fact that things really haven't improved. Well, we've asked this to everybody else at the table. I'd like to get your insight on one other thing, Congressman Fazio, is uh, was this, in fact, a referendum on the president and his management style and failed policies, or was this a we need a new direction, we have a chance to give the Republicans a chance to cowboy up, which one? Well, I think Democrats are largely, as you can read, piling on the president. They think his messaging has been ineffective. They think he's been too reclusive, not open enough. And there are lots of people complaining about his style and the way he's conducted his presidency. But I think really it goes beyond that. When things aren't going well, and 60-some percent of the people thought the country was going in the wrong direction, they take it out on whoever's in the White House. We've seen it happen to George W. Bush. We saw it happen to Bill Clinton. It's simply what happens in the second midterm election of any president. Brett Dawson, Congressman Fazio brought up a a good point, and it seems from a communication standpoint that there's either a lack of experience or there's just a tone-deaf noise going around the communication staff inside the White House. Does it strike you as odd that this the great, great public figure, grassroots president that uh, that Barack Obama is, does it strike you that, or surprise you that you're seeing this type of weak 
communication protocol coming out of this White House, and what can they do to change it? Well, uh, the interesting thing is uh, they have to be willing to change it, and I have not yet seen any evidence that they're willing to change not just the way they communicate, but the way they interact and relate to, to Congress, uh, to state state governors. I mean, they are not very competent in what they're the way they're governing. Well, let me ask you this question. Let me, let me ask it another way: Is this is this inexperience or arrogance or both? Uh, I. I don't know what's in their heads, and I don't, I'm not sure they know. It, it is, uh, you know, when Reagan was in a similar position, uh, where he lost the Senate uh, by about the, I think we lost eight seats that year. I could be wrong. Um, and Reagan immediately. This is in the '86 midterm. That's correct. Right. And and. Reagan had to change, and he did this in the middle of the Iran-Contra controversy, which made it even more difficult. Uh, but he, he brought in our base and uh, a whole new team that communicated differently than Don Reagan. And it, it, so if they want to change and they want to communicate better, they're going to have to take some pretty giant steps. That so far they don't seem willing to take. Alan Moore. That makes a really uh, important point here about what one can do in the last two years because Reagan, Bill Clinton, and George W. Bush all made changes in uh, on the on the on the senior team and got some things done in their last two years. But they had to acknowledge that there was a need for some change. They had to acknowledge that they had really taken their lumps. It's not yet clear whether this president and the team around him is willing to acknowledge that, and whether there's or, or whether they're still just trying to defend themselves against the Democrat uh, onslaught and 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 finger pointing and saying no 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 we didn't we it's not our fault it's your fault um, but uh, there's a chance and the and the first opportunity and it'll be really interesting because the president sent a powerful signal yesterday. Yeah, I'll work with these guys, but before the end of the year, I'm planning to do an executive order on immigration. Well, we don't know what that what that executive order is. So, we have to acknowledge there's a level of ignorance. But if I were this president, having watched what happened on Tuesday, you have every excuse to say we are rethinking everything. Um, we, are, we like what we're hearing from the Republicans about their desire to work with us. We'll see. We're, we're not sure whether we can believe them or not. But if I were this president, I would not take this immigration issue and stick it in the eye of the Republicans at this phase because he can, he can ruin the potential or damage the potential for a more constructive working relationship if he does that. Congressman Al, is, is this president capable of making key decisions and key changes to ensure a somewhat legacy-minded second term? Yes, he can. Uh, but it would be helpful if, if the Republicans showed a little more capacity uh, in that regard in their own right. Uh, the uh, I'm I'm reminded of Mitch McConnell's 
same upon the president being elected, that uh, essentially their, the Republican platform for the next four years or six years, whatever it was, uh, is to see that uh, the, the president doesn't get anything done. And he came very close to doing that amidst all the other things that he was talking about uh, yesterday, uh, repeating that kind of thing. It's always amazing to me that the Republicans keep talking about how the the uh, Democrats, and particularly the president, uh, don't seem to want to cooperate with them. Well, I have never seen a consistent, such a consistent uh, anti incumbent kind of vision on the part of uh, on the part of, uh, of one party over the other as that we've seen with the republicans consistently and alan keeps but talking about uh, about harry reed well mitch mcconnell is just you know beyond the pale uh so I, 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 I okay go ahead no, but Al, I, I, I have to ask. I mean, you know, when when we sit here and, and you talk about how it's been so divisive, and that even the Republicans haven't tried to extend their arm. I mean, we've seen on many occasions where the, uh, you know, especially with Speaker of the House John Boehner has opened his door, opened his arms, and said, "Please, let's sit down and talk," and that's gone largely on deaf ears at the White House. I mean, there seems to be blame on both sides. Well, when was the last time you saw blame only on one side in this town? Uh, <laughs> of, 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 of course, but it, but it's what I'm talking about is that if you listen to the Republicans' mantra, you would think that in fact they had not ever done anything that was remotely inappropriate if, for for a, a group of people that wanted to try and sit down and and uh, and uh, carve out some progress. Uh, Dan, and it's just just not the case. Dan Lipner. Okay, a couple of things now. So talking about political strategy and also the history of when the Republicans took over the House uh, two years into o Obama's term, first term, I should say, uh, he met with the Republican leadership in the House and it was when the Bush era cuts were set to expire. And to the frustration of many Democrats, including myself, he negotiated directly with the Republican leadership and, to me, gave away the store. Um, so reaching out to the Republicans and trying to figure out what to do for the next go-around is, is a good question. Wasn't, I would, wasn't that called triangulization? <laughs> well, triangulization, if you actually do some, some kind of actual public negotiating. There was no public negotiating from the White House. Now, as far as the immigration reform executive order, let's play out this political strategy just for a second. If the president goes forward with an executive order forcing the Republican Congress to do one of two things, either embrace it or attack it. If McConnell chooses to be magnanimous and say, listen, we will actually codify this into law, but we're going to do some horse trading here, do a corporate tax reform as well as do uh, immigration reform. So a, a little from both sides, somebody gets what they want. Or alternatively, Obama does does the executive order, and the Republicans choose to attack it. And what we know about presidential year elections is the demographics are different. And if the Republicans spend the next two years attacking immigration reform, I have a sneaking suspicion a lot of Latino voters are going to be reminded why they vote Democrat, and Democrats maintain the White House in 2016. There, there are two ways of looking at this exact same issue. Alan Moore. 
Yeah, I, uh, I I have to respond to the to to the to the mischaracterization of what Mitch McConnell did and did not say and when it was no, during the 2010. Alan, it was Alan during, no, you don't have to respond to that. Oh, <laughs> for the sake of the listeners, Al, it would be unfair to have them with the misimpression that has been left. It was in 2010 that he said, our top priority is to make sure that this is a one-term president. He did do some dealing, including the tax deal that Dan is so fond of, which actually was a bizarre uh, a bizarre deal and a major giveaway to the Republicans, as it turned out. The problem, though, in the last two years comes back, and we've talked about this, but I'll just remind the Harry Reid decision to change the rules on how to end debate for confirmations in the Senate. No one likes to remember that, but that so dirtied and muddied the water that the Republicans thought there, we, we are going to fight tooth and nail. We're going to delay every nomination that comes forward. It was a major setback, and Harry Reid said... We are not going to bring any bill to the floor of the Senate and allow any amendments, which is which is sort of the culmination of a process that we that that, that we've led uh, we found ourselves leading up to, and the, and the reason that people like Susan Collins, by any stretch, a moderate Republican, and Ted Cruz, sort of out there on the other side, the flanks of the party, voted together again. And again, and again, and again, was because of Harry Reid and the decisions he made to try to protect his Democrats and and and, uh, and help them avoid votes. And of course, what it meant was they could all be attacked for voting with the president 97 and 98 percent of the time. Congressman Vick, yeah, I, I really think Al makes a very good point. This has been a Republican Congress that did not want to work with the president. I mean, obviously, they had to work with him when the Bush tax cuts expired. But immigration reform it had the Senate bill, which advanced on a bipartisan basis for the support of the Chamber of Commerce, been placed on the House floor, would have passed. But nobody wanted it to pass because the base of the Republican Party simply can't accept any path to citizenship. So, you know, this has been a president. He's recoiled. From negotiating with people who he thinks have dissed him but on a regular basis. But Congressman, well, we, we, we've seen uh, Senator Rubio. We've seen de- Republic, hardcore Republican governors like uh, 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 Rick Perry down in Texas who have actively embraced through either state legislation or through their own policies saying, look, we want DREAM Act type legislation. And calling the shots in Washington. And the DREAM Act was something that a number of Republicans are smart enough to support. The Bush family understands this. Right. But they have been repudiated by the people who run the Republican Party in Washington. And that, I think, is very unfortunate. And as was said earlier, sets them up for another wave of Hispanic votes against them in two years. But, uh, Rhett Dawson, I mean, are, are we seeing the base truly run what is politically sensible for the party? Or are we listening too much to the base? Well, I'm, my impression, to kind of uh, get back to Vic's larger point, uh, my sense is the Republicans now realize that they're going, quite apart from this 
very difficult issue of immigration, which Boehner today indicated that he wants to move on uh, without necessarily conditioning it like you described. Apart from immigration, it is clear to me that the Republicans recognize that they are going to have to work in a different way than they worked uh, previously. They're going to have to, to, to be more willing to talk. That, that's my sense. Carl Tubin? Yeah, as far as immigration is concerned, there was an article, uh, an editorial in the Wall Street Journal, in which Republicans laid out their agenda. Immigration was not mentioned. Now, if the president were smart, and hopefully he will be smart, when they come in and have that meeting on Friday, he'll, he, he might suggest that, you know, there is an immigration bill sitting in the Senate, and uh, uh, which was passed by the Senate and sent to the House. Why don't we take that bill and use it as a basis and maybe make some changes to it, but use it as a basis to get it to go through? And if Red, we do that, we we'll do the executive order, Mr. President. That's right. Red Dawson. He talked about it on Wednesday. It wasn't a question of if. It was when. I understand. He is as rigid as the Republicans are. Okay, all right, hold on, Carl. Dan Lipner. No, but that's exactly the point. There is an opportunity here, and you can't play blame either side for playing politics. The question is how the other side responds. McConnell absolutely does have the ability to respond. Say, absolutely, the Senate has taken up this issue. We're in favor of immigration reform, and obviously we need to work with the House. A new bill needs to be passed. But in exchange for that, there are other issues that we can sit down and talk to the White House about. However, it's worth noting that both Perry and Rubio, when they made their moves on immigration reform, uh, Rubio in the Senate and, and in Texas, Perry for saying not quite awful things about uh, folks who are here in the country illegally, they were both punished by the, Repu the radical Republican base. Not all Republicans, but the radical base. Congressman Fazio? Well, I don't think there's any question John Boehner has understood the need to do this. Chairman of the Republican National Committee has understood the need to do it. They can't get the votes to do it. Now, Boehner's majority is larger. I think his recalcitrant caucus is going to be overwhelmed now by a majority of Republicans who will want to move in this direction. But can they move to something that would be really acceptable to the Latino community? I doubt it. Right now, the president is unpopular with that community because he hasn't stemmed the tide of deportations of family members, etc. At the same time, he's blamed on the right as leaving a porous open border with all these kids from Honduras flooding it. I mean, the, the borders are safer and, frankly, less porous now than they have been in years, and largely because of economics. There aren't as many jobs here sucking people in from Central and Latin America. Bob Hines. I think that the congressman is, I think he's actually right. I suspect that the that right now, the, the, the speaker has probably never had more authority in his own caucus than he's ever had. The, uh, the, um, the number of Tea Party people who continue to be unmovable is shrinking literally day to day. It's down from, you know, 65 to maybe 30. And it's, it's changing the House a lot. And the new members coming in are not Tea Party people. The Tea Party people lost all the primaries six months ago. So the reality is we've got a different house. And the fact that we have both houses, 
to make make even some of the more recalcitrant Tea Party people recognize this is an opportunity to get a lot of what they would like to be done. Maybe not exactly how they want it done, but they're going to be getting some th opportunities to make legislative progress. And I suspect that there will be a whole lot less difficulty within the Republican Party than there has been in the past because of the two things that the, some of the Tea Party people have learned their lesson and the opportunity have to be part of a good legislative process is going to be helpful, and they're going to be wanting to do it. But Becca Kaufman is our our own in-residence millennial here at the table. Uh, the, the question goes is, <clears throat> when we see the quote-unquote base in the Republican Party that we see, it's largely the traditional uh, audience of white retired or white professional executive males over the age of 35 that are going to vote in these elections, yet we saw a huge millennial downturn in this election. Are the millennials strong enough, and do they have the power to change the baseline inside the Republican Party to make them a force for not just what's going to go forward between now and 2016, but even in the 2016 election? Absolutely, and I would be careful at how we're interpreting the youth data. While less young people came out to vote than they did in 2012, it was around the same youth turnout as 2010. And in states that mattered, like North Carolina, Ohio, Alaska, where we outright won the youth vote, which is pretty much unprecedented, um, Florida, states across the country, there was a swing to the GOP that made the difference in these elections. I mean, Democrats still outright win youth in, in most scenarios. Young people tend to be more liberal, and that's just the reality. But the swing that we saw to, to the right here is what made the difference with the youth vote. Um, I definitely think that young people can make a difference in 2016, and they're, they're being courted by both sides. But, we but, it seems, but Becca, it seems that, let's take immigration, for example. It seems that when we look at the reality and the practicalness of coming up with real-time, practical, realistic immigration reform, do the millennials truly understand what's entailed with coming up with true, realistic immigration reform? Yes, and I think the way you pose that question is very telling about how people view my generation, as though we wouldn't understand what's going on. I mean, <laughs> and you know more than he knows. Yeah. That's very hey. The fact of the matter is, is that we're paying attention to what's going on, but Many of us are apathetic. We're disillusioned with Washington in general. We see suits in Washington that aren't listening to our best interests, and we're disillusioned with both parties. That's why the Democrats didn't see the turnout that they wanted. Um, just because we're apathetic doesn't mean we don't know what's going on. Yeah, there's a good reason to be. That's what you're saying. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Thanks, Congressman Hey, uh, Alan Moore, real quick. Yeah, I just want to say one thing uh, about immigration. It's interesting because you know a lot of us have our own personal feelings of, uh, and, and levels of knowledge about immigration and what reform might be and might not be. Uh, when we have this influx of of, uh, of people, particularly unaccompanied uh, minors uh, from mostly Central America, show up on our border, cross over, showing how vulnerable. Uh, the, the border was. There was not a huge groundswell of uh, any uh, among any age group or party, other than a lot of concern. Oh my God, are we talking tens of thousands of people? What will we do with them? Why is that happening? And one of the reasons that the president didn't 
move forward with an, with an executive order a few months ago was exactly that. And and when we when we sit around and think that all Hispanics are of one mind on what is involved with immigration reform, we're doing them a huge disservice. And I found the 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 polls, the exit polls, quite interesting because nationwide Hispanics accounted for about eight percent of the vote, and thirty-five to forty percent of that group voted Republican. It varied state by state; the number was higher, lower, and so on. But but uh, you know, it's a it's a reminder that uh, this one, although we like to think that it's pretty simple and straightforward, like most things. It's not. Dan Lipner, well, I mean, this is where some history matters. So in the 80s, uh, Ronald Reagan did the first real substantive outreach to the Latino community, and it paid off and paid off huge. Uh, and Republicans were competitive in Hispanic communities for a long time. Then fast forward a few years into the, the, the Bush administration. And I will say these words rarely, poor George W. Bush when he tried to work on a very moderate, very needed system of guest workers, not even full-fledged immigration reform, a guest worker program, the radical right wing went nuts. Those people have not gone away. This is going to be a hard issue for Republicans to deal with. There is an adult way of dealing with it. And, and the guest worker program, which there are industries in America that just need low-skilled, low-income workers, or low-cost workers. And if that adult conversation isn't had, then it's going to be a political football. There is an opportunity for leadership here. Congressman Beck. I was just going to say that Pete Wilson came along in Ronald Reagan's wake mm -hmm. and made a fundamental mistake in making the Latino community a target in California. Initiatives were put on the ballot. They went down. Latinos decided they needed to become citizens. They needed to vote. And ever since, in California, they have been a dominant Course. We've had a speaker. We're having the Secretary of State from that community. And we've seen it happen nationwide. The Republicans did do better this time because of who voted within the Latino community. The Cuban community probably voted much greater than the Mexican American community. But I guarantee you, if they foul up immigration over the next two years, Democrats will be back to 70% of the Hispanic vote. Absolutely. You know, uh, Rex Austin. Dan's comments bring up a huge question that a lot of the talking heads on the traditional media that were talking about this, and the question still comes up. When we look at the electorate and the base in the GOP, and, and even on the, on the Democratic side, but specifically on the GOP, when we mention as Republicans, we mention Ronald Reagan, we have him on line with the Holy Saints John and Jesus almost himself. It strikes me is that both George H.W. Bush, Ronald Reagan, couldn't get elected in this political climate. As a veteran of the Reagan administration, do you think that that's true? And if it's not true, how does the Republican Party shift from he's our God to, yeah, but we wouldn't elect him today because he reached out to the Hispanics and was practical about immigration and economic reform? Well, I I think Reagan would be elected in a heartbeat today. I mean, I I I think his politics. He was a very smart politician. Uh, you don't survive in California as the governor. Uh, 
uh, in the environment that he survived in with the student unrest in the in the 70s and and running for president in 76 and gracefully uh, giving the and embracing uh, Jerry Ford. I mean, this man was a consummate politician. And what we have in the White House today is not a consummate politician. Con- Con- Congressman Al, do you do you agree with uh, Rhett Dawson that Reagan, in fact, could be elected in today's political climate with his views, his political stances? That would depend so much on how things led up to uh, his uh, offering him that opportunity. Uh, I think that that Reagan would have been appalled at where the Republican Party is today because of the right wing and so forth. Uh, But whether he could could have just come back if he could if we could bring him back and and bring him a second life. I'm not sure that he could run uh, a successful campaign in the primaries in a lot of states. Yeah, every, a lot of Republicans nodding their head yes right How now. How about Teddy Roosevelt? Yeah. <laughs> Abe Lincoln. Yeah. I mean, it's uh, <laughs> Alan Moore. Why are you going down the great successful Republican? No, no, no. They'll no. all be Democrats now. <laughs> I just find it amusing that you know, that different time, different place, different people. Um, and, and 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 as Rhett pointed out, Reagan was a consummate politician with this extraordinary ability to communicate um, with with people one on one, small group, large group, television. Um, uh, Clinton had some of those skills too. He was also a consummate politician. That doesn't mean that that's what you have to be to to, to get elected, but. You know, there's the, when you look at the people who won for in the Senate uh, on Tuesday, they're all, they're, there's a huge variety of different people who got elected, different different messages, different strengths, um, and uh, you know, Mitt Romney might be able to get elected president now. He just he just completely screwed it up the last time. And, well, that's uh, an example of a successful person being surrounded by idiots. Well, we'll talk about that another time. Well, Justin, let me modify something I said just a little bit. I think I think that uh, I should have said that Reagan might possibly get get elected under current circumstances. He certainly couldn't have got elected. Uh, during the circumstances that have led uh, up to the Tea Party being such a pain in the ass for the Republicans. Subtle, Al, very subtle. Bob Hines. Ronald Reagan, Ronald Reagan uh, was a consummate politician, just like as Bill Clinton was. You know, the fact of the matter is, the politics and the issues of his day, he mastered. He'd be just as much a master today because he was that kind of a person. That's reality. He was that good. Well, Ronald Reagan was at his peak when he had some great people around. Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. If you read Lou Cannon, I think he's the Bible on Ronald right. Reagan. Yeah. You know, in the second term, particularly in the second two years, it was downhill because the staff that he was able to maintain uh, in the early going had abandoned it, right? But he had some very bright people. The morning in America thing was not Ronald Reagan's idea. He was able to communicate it incredibly well, and it sold. Right. 
But, you know, I, and, and for the first time in my political history, I heard for the first time that the Democrats and, and a lot of political pundits believe that Bill Clinton couldn't get elected in today's political environment, that he would have been seen as too conservative in some instances for the true base. Dan Lipner, you're looking at me like I got two heads. No, that's the first time I've ever heard that. Uh, it, if we could put Bill Clinton back on the ballot today, we would in a heartbeat. With the with the exception of the true Kool Aid drinking Obama cultists, um, it's just not true. Bill Clinton is the Democrats' politician to model yourself after. Uh, the only time I've heard anything more heralding of another politician was LBJ, which is a different era. Very good. Dan so, is correct. Wow. We never see that happening. You hey, know, everybody says Congress, Congressman Fazio. You've got to go back to Bill Clinton. He got along with the Republicans. He put their arm around him. He cut deals with them. They, they impeached him. I mean, this this is a hardcore group of folks on the Republican <laughs> side. They look back now and say what a lovable and articulate guy he was. They impeached him. <laughs> I mean, come on. With some reason. Good point. No, but it's worth noting. It's that reason that cost them seats in the next midterm election. No question about one that. Question. Three times since the Civil War. Right. They, Dan Lipner. Hold on. Dan Lipner. And what, what, what Congressman Fazio is saying is exactly correct. That knowing that the politics at play, the politics on the field, even with impeachment, yeah. Bill Clinton knew exactly the game that was being played. So much so there is the somewhat amazing image after the State of the Union when he's walking off the floor during the typical congratulations, he's pulled aside by one of the Republicans that voted to impeach him to get her picture taken with him. <laughs> so let, let's be clear. He still paused yeah. until still did well, it. That's like, that's like my mom says to me all the time. I may not like you all the time, but I always love you. <laughs> but that's... I may have to impeach you, but exactly the same. Not, not quite the same. You haven't met my mom. Uh, real quickly, though, yeah, we've met you, and you have met me, uh, Bob Hines. The Republicans right now have an opportunity to cowboy up, set up a great, great lobber for a home run in 2016. But the Republican Party also has an inane way of shooting itself in the foot in order to cost us the White House. Can the Republican Party, with with Tuesday's results and capturing both sides of Congress, can they cowboy up and make this thing successful and make a successful White House run in 2016? I am sure that they're going to try. The leadership is there to do it. And the, the, the rigidity of the Tea Party, the strength of the Tea Party is substantially reduced, and even those who are that way want to win. And they have a perfect opportunity to make some real success if they understand that you've got to, you, you, you've got to cut deals, you've got to negotiate, you're in the majority, you're going to win most of the points, but you have to play the game. You can't say my way or the highway. And I don't think anybody is going to do that on the Republican side that has any, any clout. Carl Tuvin? It sort of depends how many people get into the Republican primary, presidential primary, and whether the chairman of the Republican National Committee can set down rules 
and tell these folks that you have to abide by these rules and that they can't go haywire one way or the other. Uh, that that hurt them a lot the last time. They realized it, and and they I think they tried to set rules, but that's that's a big question. Becca Kaufman. I actually disagree with you. I think strategically what the RNC did well this cycle was saying very vague and abstract things that could piss off no faction of the party. And that's why we saw that the, the tensions dissipate as much as they did. I mean, we put out the, what did they put out, the, like, commandments of liberty or whatever they call right, it? Right, right. And it was just very, very vague Republican language that was very hard for anyone to disagree with. I bet the majority of Democrats probably agree. Right. It was very agreeable language. So I think that the RNC is doing well in their strategy to appease everyone. Congress got out of the way. They wanted this to be about Obama. Don't yeah. put anything out there on the Republican side. Yeah. That would just confuse the voters. Right. The problem now is they really don't have an agenda. They really don't bring with them and the votes that they won a direction that people want to go in. Con- it's well, all about Obama. Well, Congressman Fazio, while we've got you on the mic, well, how much pressure right now is on John Boehner to make this successful? I think John Boehner now is going to take a stronger hand with his enlarged majority. And I think some people are going to be written off who in the past he had to cater to. But I think he and McConnell really do want to prove they can govern as a way of letting the American people know that it's okay to vote Republican for president. I agree. Congressman Al, how much pressure is on John Boehner as speaker to make this thing work? Well, I think that the, 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 the Tea Party has overstayed its welcome. Uh, and that has made Boehner's job infinitely easier than it was, uh, say, two, three years ago. Uh, So I I expect uh, John to do well. Uh, Mitch McConnell, I don't know. There's something inherently nasty about Mitch McConnell, and whether he can overcome that or not, I don't know. Uh, But but Boehner doesn't have the same problem. Well, uh, Rhett Dawson, Mitch McConnell. Uh, when you, we look at Mitch McConnell, does Mitch McConnell have the backing of people like Ted Cruz, Mike Pence, that crowd to get them, even uh, the newest uh, elected senator from uh, Joni Ernst? Does he have the capability to corral them in and go forward with one solid Republican message that can make this successful? I'm not sure it's one solid Republican message, but he clearly has just contrasted this is hard to say because, I mean, the, the speech that the president made, and contrast that with Mitch McConnell, and Mitch McConnell came off better than the president did. I mean, I, I, to me, I don't know anybody that can argue the point that the president was in such deep denial that, and, and, and I heard McConnell and I heard Boehner, and they're both advancing an agenda that's specific. You know, it may not be immigration up front first, but there are certainly things they're going to try to do uh, right away. I'm going to let that be the, I'm going to let that be the last word. Thank you very much, Rhett Dawson. But, and by the way, this is a special edition of Backroom Politics live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street on our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. It is our fourth year anniversary. And with that, I want to talk a little bit about our anniversary here. Uh, for those of you who are recent listeners, to the show and the podcast. Uh, we've been doing this now effectively four years. What started out as a 
a round-the-table discussion with Congressman Al, Bob Hines, and myself turned into kind of a little cult following and something that we never thought we'd see. Bob Hines, did you think we'd go four years? I wasn't sure it'd make four weeks. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what's a, what's a marvelous about it is that it has grown so well. We have had so such such uh, many many good programs. We've had wonderful guests who've been kind enough to join us, and it's been a good time for politics. There's been a lot of good politics, so you can talk a lot about it, and that's what we've been talking about. Congressman Al, did you think we'd make it four years? No, uh, I, 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 my head spins around when, whenever you say that because uh, I, I think it's it, it's astonishing. Uh, but I, I think there are some reasons for it. One is that I, I think almost anybody who listens to the program can tell that we like each other. Uh, we obviously disagree. Alan Moore and I, on occasion, will just just primarily to shake everybody up, will agree on something, uh, but mostly we don't agree. But uh, but we've been friends for years, and the uh, same with with Bob Hines. So that I think that's one thing that is different than in some of these programs where you swear to God the moment the camera is off they're going to start throwing punches. Uh, secondly, uh, we we allow, we don't take ourselves so seriously that you can't get a little humor in here, and uh, and we 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 laugh a lot, and I think that helps too. Congressman Fazio, you, this is now your third appearance on the show, and we're really, really thankful that you've been, you know, one of our original guests from early on. Uh, what makes a show like this have a cult? I mean, we've done this pretty much word of mouth, but it seems that the fact that we do promote civility, that we do promote common sense and statesmanship, we don't see that in the regular media. Why? What makes us different from everybody else? Well, most of us really got rolling in the 60s, and cults were big then. <laughs> <laughs> I don't believe that Congressman Vic Stasio is referred to us as the Jonestown of political radio. People enjoy a good, you know, vibrant, vibrant discussion, and they really don't appreciate uh hatchet jobs. And, uh, you know, from what I've seen as a participant here, people just uh, enjoy differing intelligently uh, about the issues of the day. It, it, uh, Rhett Dawson, this is your first appearance on our show, right. and thank you again for, for joining us. This is a great a great treat to have you on the show. When, when we look around the, the general, what we would call the traditional media these days, it seems that there's a lot more demagoguery and rhetoric. Uh, we have uh, Dan Littner, our colleague, who likes to call it the foxification of media. We have uh, our colleague Alan Moore, who calls it the MSNBCification of media. Have, has there been a huge divide, or is it just a, a sense of apathy that people just feel that they can watch Fox, they can watch MSNBC, get their 30-second sound bite and go, all right, I'll go to the voter. They make sense. Is there a need for more shows like this to talk practically about politics? Yeah, no, I'm, I'm, this is my first time uh, not only participating, but I must say I didn't know that the Jonestown crowd was getting together like this. So. <laughs> for the record, we're not Jonestown. <laughs> my God. It's been a real treat because there's a camaraderie and a, and a, and a mutual respect 
that is missing from a lot of the conversations uh, that you see um, on Fox or Rachel Maddow or, or some of these other. I mean, one guy, the screaming guy that used to work Tip, I, I'm blanking on his name. Chris, oh, Chris Matthews. And I went, I went on his show one time, and I thought I was going to turn into a, a grease spot. I mean, it was just an <laughs> awful experience. I've been accused of being Chris Matthewish no, no, or John no, McLaughlinish. No, no, no. Alan Moore, you were the first major addition to the to the roundtable going into our first reiteration of the show. What have you seen over the past four years, and, and what made you decide to stay with us for three years like this? I ask myself that every week. <laughs> Trust me, because I would love to know. <laughs> what, when are you going to get a life, Alan? <laughs> um, no, Al described it, as, I thought, beautifully. We... We have fun. We like each other. But we think this stuff is important. We think about it. We've been thinking about it uh, for years and years. Um, and uh, and it's, it's our way to kind of play the game outside of the game. Many of us have been on the inside where you have these kinds of conversations. You... You, or you observe them up close if it's in a, a congressional committee uh, or a backroom conversation, and it's a it's a way to 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 still think like that, apply some skills on important matters, important issues with people of goodwill and good humor. Um, I think it's as simple as that. Yeah, Congressman Fazio, you know, we, we we've heard Congressman Al Swift talk about this all the time. That this kind of goes back to the old days of of Tip O'Neill just sitting around having a drink, having a cigar in the cloakroom, and and just you know I may say I may fight like hell to take down your legislation, but at the end of the day we're still going to go have a drink and a yeah. cigar. Yeah. Why has that left Washington? Well, you know I think we are a more polarized country right now. We we live in enclaves. We talk to people who are like us and we agree with each other because we are one point of view. We don't have as much interaction. And when people come to Congress, they come uh, almost willing to sign up with a blood oath to not deviate from the party line. In the day when Tip was Speaker and Ronald Reagan was in the White House, we didn't have that. You know, I used to laugh about the differences between the Kalanians and the Rotarians. I mean, <laughs> it, was, it was more universal across party lines. But today, uh, the social issues have been so divisive. The economic theories that are popular are so divisive. We, we just haven't had the ability to develop the personal relationships in a period when people get on the plane and go home every week and don't get to know each other's families or really share any commonality of experience. So we, we are not serving, in my view, the public interest by taking this kind of rigid party line positions on almost everything. Bob Hines. I want to follow up on what Vic said. And I'm going to tell us a quick story that I know it to be true because both of the people I'm going to mention told me it separately the same story. When Tip O'Neill was the, uh, the rich and Jerry Ford was the minority leader in the House, they were very close personal friends. 
And at one was Bob Michael and too. Yes. And, and and one day they're walking, you know, over to the one of the buildings together, kind of just relaxed. And Kip says, Jerry, what are you gonna do? What are you doing tonight? He says, Oh, we got some friends in from Grand Rapids. Their kids went to school with our kids. We're a big cookout in the backyard and just have a good old home fine. Relax, gonna do a good time. And Kip said, Gee, that's just wonderful, Jerry. I, I really think that's great. And Jerry said, Chip, what are you going to do? He says, oh, I'm going back to the office and screw you. We'll figure out what to do tomorrow. <laughs> and, and the two of them started laughing so yeah, hard. They couldn't yeah. believe this. They're, they're arm in arm, walking away, just, and boom. Dan Lipner? Couldn't happen today. Could not happen today. Dan Lipner. Well, it's actually part of the question that I have for all of the exclusively gentlemen around the table that are significantly more grade than me. Um, so that... And that's one of my both joys and frustrations that the show exists and what isn't there in other places, that there's so much more news out there, but so much less substance at play. Oh, yeah. how, how do you think that affects the narrative that, I mean, this show is one of the only places that I've seen and, and for, for you all inviting me on, that you can both talk about the politics at beyond the abstract, uh, just name calling buzzword level, but also dive into the substance. A little bit, and, and for all of you who have been around, I'm kind of curious how you think that's changed. Let's start with you, Rhett Dawson. I think the biggest virtue of this program is it doesn't have video. <laughs> no, it's not because you're all ugly. What are you saying? I have a voice. I have a face for radio. Our cult would be even smaller. <laughs> look at it. Look at me. Trust me, they would. I was around for the for the opening up the debate in the Senate as for, for cameras, and there were some very wise people who were adamantly against it because it would cause people to change. And I think it has changed. I, I think the, the the demise of, the, although talk radio certainly has got its own poisonous stripes, yeah. uh, by and large, you put a camera in front of somebody, they start acting differently. And, and, the, and the audience starts judging differently. So I, you know, my, my, so my advice is don't bring a camera. We won't. Vic Fazio, same question to you. Ideology sells these days. I mean, Fox knows its audience and they cater to them. MSNBC has a smaller one, but they cater to them. That's what sells advertising. That's what gets continued viewership. Uh, the stuff that we engage in here doesn't turn enough of the red-hot viewers on. They don't want to hear conflicting views. That's why perhaps we are a cult. <laughs> not a broadly <laughs> for media. And I just, I hate that fact, but it's a reality. Right. Alan Moore? Yeah, just to, to follow on, on Vic's comment, because I, I agree with it. It, it. When you're only talking to people who share your view, um, it may feel comforting, but it's not very interesting, and it's not very enlightening. Um, and it's a lot more fun to to think hard on what they're saying. I, I know I annoy people around this table when I bring up facts. <laughs> those, those, those pesky devils. When they're opposite to the, to the powerful, conclusive narrative that somebody is advancing, and it's, oh, damn you, how did you do that? Um, but it's, 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 it's part of a it's it's part of the fun, but it's also a reminder of why you want 
both sides there. It's it's not just two points of view, but different different sets, different interpretations uh, uh, of of what's going on. And if we're listening, which hopefully we are, even around the table, we're actually learning sometimes grudgingly from the other guy. True. Like, ah, true story. Good point. Good yeah. point. I don't want to admit it, but good point. <laughs> Rebecca Coffin. You are the the latest addition to the permanent roundtable that we have every week, and and we we truly love having you around. I mean, originally when this first started, five white guys around the table just didn't cut it. We, and we things have changed so much and right now. They, <laughs> no, it's now one millennial female and a bunch of white guys. Denise, Denise. Well, Denise, we're going to talk about Denise in a second. We got to congratulate her, but. Uh, when you see, and, and I'm, I'm going to do the old nasal cane thing right now, when you see the short attention span of the millennials in the huge web-based, multimedia, faceted, uh, mainstream media that we see today, does a show like this resonate with them? Could it resonate with them? Yes, I think there's a, a thirst for content like this. And, I mean, we, we digest things in sound bites and short clips. And that's because we're a generation that grew up with all this technology where we were forced to condense thoughts into a 40-character tweet or a two-sentence text. That's just how we were raised. And I don't think that's reflective of us simplifying our ideas and the way we view the world. Uh, so I do think that there is a hunger and a thirst for shows like this. I love this show. I know that I personally love digesting um, long-form journalism. I read The Atlantic all the time, The New Yorker, things like that. I I I read the long stuff. Just on a day-to-day basis, I'm looking for short, aggregate content. Let me ask you a question, because I, I, and this is the great thing to do. Why did you want to be on the show? Well, I I love. I think that you guys have really rational conversations. I think that we're all forward-looking, and I think there's a diversity of ideas, but we're all pretty much on the we – we share the same basic premises about the world. No one thinks that the sky is blue, and someone else thinks the sky is red. Well, I think the sky is red today. Because, well, if you look through uh, his glasses today, they're red. They're, they're, uh, yeah, he's red I'll, with anger. I'm red with joy. <laughs> so but, but, again, why, why, why us? I mean, you're, you're talking about a show that – you know, I mean, theoretically, certain telecommercials have a bigger audience than we have sometimes. Uh, why would you want to spend two hours every Tuesday being here instead of being out partying Georgetown or, or Adams Morgan? Well, I do that after. Oh, okay. All right. <laughs> <laughs> She's actually buying for everyone tonight. <laughs> no, I, I really appreciate intellectual honesty. I think that it's a good mental exercise. I think it's important for females to be a part of conversations like these, even if it's in a small way. I think it's very, very important for my generation to have a voice during conversations like these. And even if this is happening with a small cult following, I'm so glad that it's happening. Uh, uh, Congressman Al, over the four yeah. years, what what have been some of your memorable moments on the show? Hmm. I think I think once I topped Alan, that that was a big one. <laughs> but I can't remember. You know. But I can't remember what it was, so I he would nail me to the wall on that one. Once every I, four years, now. Once every four years, I'm gonna <laughs> bow down. Yeah. <laughs> I I I think that uh, some of the best. 
things we've done were we were totally unprepared for. People that just walked in. I mean, former mayor of New York, uh, Giuliani, uh, yeah. was sitting uh, at the table, and uh, he came over and and, and uh, shot the bull with us for a while. And, and uh, we've had other examples of that. We've had a, a couple that backfired badly. But when we got the, the the president of the Western States Tea Party group who dropped by, oh my God, and he stayed forever. <laughs> but essentially, I think it's uh, those those that throw a little uh, surprise into the format, and, and they work well. Congressman Fazio, you had a thought. I, I had a thought, and you know, it relates to the failure of the committee system in Congress to work. And, you know, it's top-down now from leadership. Committee chairs, perhaps at one time, were too powerful. But a lot of dialogue, a lot of communication occurred within the committee structure. People got to know other members of the committee across the aisle as human beings. And they found areas of common agreement. And they began to respect each other even when they didn't agree. That has broken down now. You walk in, somebody hands you the agenda, you vote it, and you go. That interaction that we enjoy here is what made committees function effectively and help the entire Congress. Carl Tubin. Yeah, you know, when I went off to college, I met with a rabbi in New York who was a friend of, a friend of mine. And he told me the one thing, when you talk about religion, talk about it in a, in a, a, a very nice way. And always remember at the end that uh, uh, always agree to disagree, but agree to disagree in an agreeable way. And I think that that's one of the things that makes this program different than other programs, because we can fight like the devil, but, you know, we all come together at the end in in, in an agreeable situation. Bob, and that's a great point, Carl. Bob, what are some of the memorable moments you've seen over the past four years? I would not really pick any particular uh, scene, if you will, but I just, I think that the the camaraderie is real. The discussions are pointed. The, dis- the disagreements are pointed, but it's always in good humor. It's always in a, in a way of comfort with the other guy or gal because we respect each other and fundamentally, that is the key to having the program as successful as it is and having colleagues and, and like we do here and have guests like we have today that are you know folks of the same quality and they enjoy the kind of give and take that is that is uh, not uh, trying to one up each other just trying to clarify and make as clear as possible what we're talking about to to, the, to our listeners I think that is the value of the program and it, to me it isn't just one, I don't have just one thought about the program or what particular experience I've had, but it's the, it's the accumulation of, of the of just the concept of the program that to me is such an important thing. Dan Lipner, uh, you yourself are a recent addition to the, to the show. Uh, you're a veteran of several major campaigns, both at the nationwide, statewide level. Uh, you you brought a, a, a the democratic version of Alan Moore to the table, which is always entertaining. Uh, but you never but you never 
introduce him as good looking. You you you've got to introduce Dan as good looking now. He's he's not distinguished or handsome. Uh, <laughs> the the reality is is that one would think that even the campaigns it, it would listen to the show just to get a sense of what the real talk is in Washington versus what's being broadcast. Are they so are they so dependent on the mainstream traditional 30 second soundbite media that something like this just falls short or how do they even listen to this? Well, and uh, well, as much as I appreciate being compared directly to Alan Moore, I come from more of the, the, the political side than the policy side, though I have dabbled in policy as well. So it, in, in deference to Alan. Um, but that being said, the answer is no. And politics at the, the, the voter level of how you persuade people, I think has actually taken over everything. Um, it was first mentioned during the Bush years that there was no actual policy machine. There were all these political types who knew how to invite, but no one actually knew what was in any piece of legislation going anywhere. And unfortunately, I've heard the exact same thing, though to a slightly lesser degree, but the indictment falls on both houses for the Obama White House. And there are less people, both Democrat and Republican that actually want to engage in a substantive conversation on what laws actually do. So it's easy to be, do name calling, but back in the, in the 90s, when, when Clinton did immigration reform, excuse me, not immigration reform, excuse me, welfare reform, there was a very hot debate. And a, a, what a bunch of people on the radical left thought was a, a hardcore uh, excuse me, welfare reform that really hurt uh, poor people went through. <laughs> Similarly, the right, the radical right, didn't quite get as much as they wanted. But what you got was a legislation that passed that got experimented on a bunch of places uh, in both Wisconsin and Michigan under Republican governors with the aid of the Democratic administration got to do some interesting experiments with welfare reform. It can work, but it takes an honest, real conversation on what policy does and who, who the players are and what can go through. But if it turns into the 30-second ad, like uh, Senator Udall had, which it earned him the moniker uh, Senator Uterus, um, without talking about what else is going on, what other issues are at play, or even an honest conversation of the Ebola issue in this country. It, it became an issue since most Americans didn't understand what's going on because there were, there were not a number of responsible people having the conversation. Alan Moore. You know, one thing we have not talked about uh, that, that, that the president talked about yesterday, uh, which I think we uh, as a group embrace, is the idea that he is now, in fact, going to come to the Congress and ask for it to join with him and authorize uh, the actions that we will be taking in Syria. Um, and and I look forward to hearing that debate. I think it'll be a serious debate. Sure, will there be some politics and some posturing and gamesmanship? Absolutely. But it's also going to be a serious proposition on a really serious subject. And I think there is a hunger for that. Um, Mitch McConnell is a legislator. A lot of these people are legislators. Vic was talking about the, 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 the role of committees. Al has talked about the, the 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 sad decline of the role of committees. Um, people want to feel like they make a difference. Most of them don't come up there just to have a paycheck and maybe get a little bit of 
of fame or a jumping off point to to some other job. They are they come because they want to be part of this process. They believe in it. Most of them have had experience in uh, in 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 their state or local government before they before they come to Washington, and they care about making a difference. And the difference is not keeping control for my party, which for decision-making might be centralized around the leadership, but coming here to make a difference in the, in the country, in, in their constituents, and so on. I'm hopeful, continuing to be naively optimistic, perhaps, that with this change, with a clear, delineated two parties in control, that uh, that we're going to see some movement back in that direction, and, and I I hope it occurs. I embrace the idea. Do you think our show could be part of that dialogue? No. <laughs> <laughs> it was morning Carl. and dusk at Alan Moore. Carl Tubin. It's evening in America. We have seen in the last two years where two or three congressional committees have come together, House and Senate, to agree on certain things. Uh, the Appropriations Committee uh, worked out uh, an agreement. Uh, the Veterans Affairs Committees have worked out an agreement. There was one other that worked on a, a big bill, which is a space by mind. I just hope that uh, when McConnell takes over as a leader in the Senate, that possibly we can have more committee, committees work together as the two did when it was a Democratic Senate and a Republican House yeah. and, and really move things forward. Right. Well, uh, Congressman Al, you know, again, we wish you were here, but when you look at the, at the, at the next four years, uh, hopefully the show will continue uh, and the audience will continue to grow. What what do you think is the possibility that we will get to see more of a dialogue similar to what we do around the table in Congress and in, in politics in general? I think there is a way to do it, and uh, it's probably too impractical to ever take place. But we've got to get these people talking to each other. You you can't uh, hate somebody whom you uh, met uh, uh, kind of accidentally and grew to like before you knew what you were doing. Uh, and so I think that uh, a lot of that depends upon the media taking a different approach to how they report things such as uh, foreign trips. Uh, are, are, are congressional trips sometimes uh, abused? Yes, alas, they are, but they don't have to be. And many of them are not. And, uh, the, and the best place to get to know a colleague from across the aisle, frankly, is having to live, eat, and sleep with them for, uh, for uh, 10 days. Uh, and suddenly you find uh, that uh, the guy that uh, really teed you off in, in the, on the floor last week because of something he said in debate, uh, and you find out that this is this is a heck of a nice guy uh, or gal, as the case may be. So I, I think you need to change the the the, 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 the uh, what's the right word the the uh, uh, 
<laughs> you need the style of the of the of the Congress, uh, and style isn't quite the right word. But you you need to have a different way to deal with things so that you, you get to know each other. Yeah. Can I ask you, Al, what do you think is the effect of this uh, Tuesday-Thursday calendar and the fact that people get defeated if they move their families to Washington and have to uh, deal with the downside of that back home when they've uh, been accused of going Washington? Well, I I don't like that. Uh, I, I think that... Uh, that I think that we place way too much emphasis on how how much time someone spends quote at home. Uh I think uh if you're going to get anything done here, it's important that you spend some time in Washington DC. And I have taken I took one foreign trip per term uh and I found all seven of them to be absolutely fascinating. Uh, I learned an enormous amount that I needed to know as a member of Congress, uh, and uh, so, so I, I, I really think that the idea that somehow if you if you're spending all your time in the local uh, donut shop uh, talking to constituents that you're a better congressman than if you're spending some time talking to your colleagues uh, uh, over a cup of coffee in a committee room. Well, I'm going to let that be the last word. I want to take a couple of minutes here and give some of my own thoughts as, as, as moderator of the show. <clears throat> we've been doing this now four years, and we've got a roundtable right now that I, I couldn't be more proud of. Uh, one of the characters that we don't talk about a lot here on the show, one of the characters that's here is Shelley's Backroom itself. The idea of the name backroom politics came from the idea of the smoky back rooms of Congress and the deals were made and people talked and made compromises. And we took that mantra forward with three, well, two old white guys and a very large middle-aged guy and decided to take that forward four years ago. But we couldn't do this show without the graciousness and the support and basically the the benefaction of uh, Bob Matarazzi and Nari Matarazzi and all the girls and guys that work here at Shelley's Backroom. It has made backroom politics kind of what it is, and it's helped us get the cult following. So I want to say that. What makes this show popular, in my opinion, is the fact that we've got intelligent dialogue from people who are truly inside Washington, but explain Washington in a way that people in the Midwest, in the farthest reaches of Alaska, in the southernmost parts of Florida, can really understand it as a understanding of what really is talked about in Washington. It's 30-second sound bites. It may not be the most interesting radio that you'll hear, but it is the most educational radio that you hear, that you'll hear. We have made changes. We've made a lot of changes in folks at the roundtable from when we first started to what we have today. We've grown up. We've overcome some of the technical issues, uh, and and we're going to yeah. I'll get to that in a second. But we've overcome a lot of the technical issues. We've still got more technical stuff that we're working on. We hope that this goes on for another four years. Uh, and with that being said, I have to give a special thanks to the true core of what has been backroom politics, the ones that have been with us the longest, 
Bob Hines, you and Gail have been a tremendous, tremendous help, friend, and ally. Uh, it is, it is something you've been a great champion of me doing the show and doing the show with me, and I'll never be able to pay that debt back. Congressman Al, you've been a great friend, a great ally, and a great cheerleader for this show and for me. Uh, and we couldn't do it. Part of what gives us legitimacy is the fact that you are Congressman Al. Um, <laughs> Carl Tubin, you bring us a great state perspective from your time as a state director of the Democratic Party. You bring a great Washington insider's view, which we can't, you know, we can't get in some instances. Uh, Alan Moore, you have, you were the catalyst for really the rebirth and then growing up of backroom politics. Uh, you and your wife have been great supporters. She's allowed you to come down here every Tuesday and hang out with a bunch of us and kind of talk into a microphone ad nauseum. Uh, and, and for that, we'll never be able to repay that debt either. But as the new generation of backroom politics begins, we've been very fortunate to have two, three, I mean, three major additions to this. One of them, and I got to give a shout out to her and say congratulations to our very own Denise Krepp, who won her election as the Area Neighborhood Commissioner in Area Neighborhood Commission 6B10. Uh, She won won decisively. We're not just soft. We're We're not not just soft. We can get people elected, too. Um, It is also a fact that, you know, people that normally wouldn't even show their faces or even be associated with a cult-following show like Backroom Politics, such as, New additions like Red Dawson, you know, some of our greatest uh, contributors such as Congressman Vic Fazio, uh, and even some like Ray LaHood. Uh, uh, we had uh, uh, Mike Oxley. Mike Oxley. Uh, we've had um, Rudy Giuliani on. We had uh, Tom DeLay. Just a whole litany of, of, of truly powerful people that normally wouldn't even associate with this show help make this show successful as well. So we, we, we appreciate most of all the supporters that listen and download this show. They listen to us live. They call in sometimes. They download us a lot. But we can't do this show without the listeners, and we really appreciate it. We hope you enjoy us for another four years as we continue to grow, continue to become more technologically savvy, try to bring you more content in the future, both here and online. We're going to work on that as well. But... Uh, With that, I am going to say, for the next four years, on behalf of Bob Hines, Carl Tuvin, Becca Kaufman, Alan Moore, Dan Lipner, and, of course, Congressman Al Swift out there in Radioland, I'm your moderator, Justin Russell. This has been Backroom Politics. You can follow us online at www.backroompolitics.org. You can follow us on the Twitter at backroompolitics. Or you can email me your comments, concerns, or congratulations at justin at backroompolitics.org. Thank you very much. We'll see you next Tuesday. We'll be talking about where Congress goes from here. This has been Backroom Politics Special Edition, fourth year anniversary, uh, live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital. Bob Hines. The place to be. And it will be for the next four years. Have a great week, America. We'll see you Tuesday. Woo.